this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Pray just for a moment. Spirit, spirit of gentleness, blow through the wilderness, calling and free. Spirit, spirit of restlessness, stir us from placidness. Amen. God is incredibly patient, but he will not always be. And uh, that is the word that comes to us from God through the prophet Joel. And Joel has two main messages that he shares with us. We're thankful for Brad and his willingness to help us know the difference between a minor and a major prophet. And now we all know as well as the children. But uh, an illustration, Isaiah, I just spoke about, his book has 65 chapters. Ezekiel, that many of us have heard about, has 48 chapters. Jeremiah, another major prophet, has in his writings 52 chapters. And Joel, the book that we are looking at today, has three chapters. But as Brad Wells said, That doesn't mean that the message is minor. In fact, how could any message from God be minor? So Joel has these two main messages. And they are so important from God's perspective that God tells us through Joel, tell these messages to your children and your children to their children. And he takes another step and says, and their children to their children. In other words, this is an extremely important message that God has for us. And we dare not miss it or forget it. Now, message number one. God will bring judgment. Judgment will be coming. And when it comes, no one 
and nothing will escape it. It's clear from Job's message that he will share with us that judgment, final judgment, which Joel calls the day of the Lord, will come. Now, Joel shares a vivid image of what it will be like. And he does not shrink from painting this calamity with the darkest colors possible. Joel uses something that has happened in his day in Judah as an example of what it will be like on the day of the Lord. And he uses the example of an invasion of locusts, which he says was unparalleled to all other invasions. Now we know from secular history as well as the Bible that there were many invasions of locusts in the earlier times among the people of the Middle East. There are many records, many, many records of invasions in Egypt or in Judea or somewhere there in the Middle East. Uh, we have, for example, a record of one observer who witnessed the uh, locust plague in Lebanon in 1845. And, and in one sentence, this is what the, the witness says. I saw under my own eye not only a young vineyard loaded with young grapes, but a whole fields of corn disappeared as if by magic. So he describes something that would be like a garden of Eden, suddenly wiped out to the extreme desert. Now, Joel, in his vividness, uh, shares with us uh, these words from his first chapter. What the cutting locust left the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the devouring locust has eaten. Can't you imagine that? And he says, wake up. Wake up. You who drink too much and weep, scream over the sweet wine, all of your wine drinkers, all of you wine drinkers, because it has been snatched from your mouth. Because a nation powerful and beyond number has invaded my land. Its teeth are like lion's teeth. Its fangs are like those of a lioness. It has destroyed my vines splintered my fig trees, stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches have turned white. 
lament. Like a woman dressed in a funeral clothing, one who has lost the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are gone from the Lord's temple. They can't even worship. The priests and the Lord's ministers mourn. The fields are devastated. The ground mourns, for the grain is destroyed. The new wine dries up. The olive oil fails. Be shocked, you farmers, how, you vine dressers, over the wheat and the barley, for the crops of the field are destroyed. The grapevine is dried up. The fig tree withers. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. Joy fades away completely from the people. This unparalleled invasion of locusts brings about total destruction. And nothing and no one, everything and everybody is a part of the sweep of its motion. And Job equates this to something like the day of the Lord when it happens. Lesson number one from message number one. God will bring judgment. Now you can, you can sear this in your mind like a brand would be seared on the skin of an animal so that you never forget it and you tell your children and their children, your children will tell their children and their children will tell their children. Judgment will come. And God will judge sinful nations. And God will judge sinful, sinful, sinful people. And God will judge sinful, simple person. Uh, will sinful, I'm trying to say it and can't get it out. Uh, God will judge sinful persons. God will judge sin because God hates sin. And he will destroy it forever. Joel says, when the day of the Lord comes. May it be seared in our minds. Message number two from God. God loves to forgive. It is his loving nature to forgive. God has promised he will forgive. 
And as Paul said to Timothy in the second letter he wrote to Timothy, if we even do not believe, God will remain faithful to his promise because God will not deny himself. In other words, it's in his very essence and being to want to forgive. And here's a part of the message that's in this letter from, or this book from Job. He says, Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all of your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, with sorrow. Tear your hearts, not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate very patient, full of faithful love, and ready to forgive. The first part of this message is repent and be free from your sins because God is willing to forgive. If we're willing to repent. Now, hold on, if you will, just for a moment, because it's important to know, and it's stated in Hebrews, the eighth chapter, in verse 14, that God says, I will forgive their unrighteousness and forget, not remember, he says, not remember their sins. I want you to connect the two. Not only does God have a willingness to forgive, God has a willingness to not just forget what's there but not think about it. God has a willingness to forgive and remove any memory of that sin. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, God wants to wipe out the sin. Now, I want you to hold on just for a moment also in the sense that God not only forgives and forgets or removes the memory. God also restores. Theologically, when we talk about it in, in, in theological terms, we're talking about redemption and justification. God restores. Remember Luke 15? Uh, that sometimes called the the, the, the lost son or the wayward son, and really it's about, about the loving father. Br bring a new robe and put on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. He was lost and is found. He was dead and he's alive. So remember, whoever you are, that God wants to move you 
even from forgiveness and removal of memory to restoration. Uh, Joel says it this way, what he hears from God. God's saying, I will repay you for the years that the cunning locusts, the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, and the devouring locusts has eaten. You will eat abundantly and be satisfied. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God. I hope there's a lot of praise in your hearts at this moment as you think about God's willingness to take another step in restoration. And probably most of you know in the story, because it's been preached from so much and rightfully so, when, God, when the father is asking for a ring to be put on his son, what he means is this is a ring of authority. Put the ring of authority on him so that he has a right to take this and stamp it on any document or on anything that he needs. And it's the same as if the father was stamping it. And God is saying, put a robe on her, a new robe. Put a ring on her finger, shoes on her feet. And we praise God for restoration. How grateful we are that he restores the years the locust has eaten. Dark would come before I finish telling you about my own life and how many times I've seen how God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And how grateful, how grateful. You, similarly. Now, I, I'm going to meddle here just for a moment and park the sermon just for a second. It would seem, and often, uh, in, in often worship services, we are afraid of this altar. Now, I'm just, I'm meddling. I'm going to speak to you from my mind and my heart. This is a wonderful place. It, in, in Methodist tradition, the altar is a place that is used often. It should be used by us to put our knees down and say, God, I need forgiveness. I have sin in my life that I need you to remove and I need you to wipe it out. God, I need to be restored as a son or daughter. But it ought to also be a place where we can come with joy in our hearts and say, God, I am just aware of what you have done in cleansing me and cleansing us, and I just want to praise you. And this is a sort of a traditional place where we can praise God. I always wanted congregations when I was their pastor to know there, there's no judgment goes on when someone comes forward and kneels at the altar. You stop it if you're trying to think why someone might come and kneel. And it's that thing, it's really pride in our hearts, that keeps us sometimes when the Holy Spirit is just wooing and drawing us 
And he doesn't want anything to do but love us. We would do our neighbors and others that we worship with great favor if we learn to be free about being on our knees together in worship. You know, I uh, uh, was blessed by being able to be with my group of seven, there are eight of us, in dinner. And I told them the other night, you know, often in worship, I, I feel blessed. And I, uh, I sometimes say amen out loud. But that's not sufficient for what's going on in my soul. And I've learned through my brothers and sisters of the African tradition that I had the privilege of pastoring. One of the ways you, you edify your your praise and you, you satisfy your soul in praise. When they are blessed, they stand up. That may be during singing, it may be during preaching, but they stand up. Sometimes they may raise their hands, open their palms, what the Bible says you should do, and they just praise. Sometimes they just stand. And I said, I, you know, I've been tempted a number of times to just stand. But I'm afraid it will interrupt the sermon, it will interrupt the message, the, the anthem, or whatever it might interrupt. And people say, what's wrong with him? What's, what kind of attention does he want? I guess I'm pleading just uh, personally from uh, parking the sermon for a moment to say, Oh, would to God that this congregation could just relax. Who knows how much praise can go on when we truly are free. Now, that means we be ourselves. We're not trying to be a Pentecostal congregation. We're just trying to be who we might be in our own self, in the movement of the Spirit. But I, I want you to hear message number two. Message number two, God loves to forgive. God is willing, if we repent and confess, to forgive us. And God is willing to remove any memory of that sin. It's gone. And God then takes another step, part two of this message, in restoring us for the years that the locusts have eaten. That's sufficient, you would think. But there's a third part to message number two. I will pour out my spirit on everyone. No longer am I going to do a special thing with my Holy Spirit among my prophets or on my leaders. In these last days, God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on everyone. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Our sons and our daughters will discern and declare the will of God. 
That's basically what it means to prophesy. To discern and declare accurately the will of God. And your young will see visions. And your old will dream dreams. Because God is among us. And when God begins to live in us, like John 15 says, the vine and the branch, I and you and you and me, God not only is a God that moves there from a distance in forgiving and forgetting and restoring, but he now wants to come and tabernacle in this place, in this place, and be among us. He's the one who then empowers. He's the one. We have this beautiful banner over here. Chad was noticing from Philippians. I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. This wonderful word, God wants to be in you and in me and help us to be able to be as well as do things we never imagined possible. It would be good if all Christians would sear into their mind not only the fact that the day of the Lord will come, but also Ephesians 3.20 where God says he will do more immeasurably more than we can ever ask or even imagine. But it doesn't stop there. By his power at work in us. Lesson one from message two. God loves to forgive. God forgets and removes memory. God restores And God empowers through the Holy Spirit. Luke 11, 11 through 13. Jesus says, Which one of you, if your child should ask for a fish, you would give him a snake? Or if he asked for an egg, you would give him a scorpion? you, Jesus says, then being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.